Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 27, verses 1 to 14. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're going to pause uh, just uh, for one week only from our, from our Sermon on the Mount series, which has been the series we've, we've been in. Uh, and today I want to talk about the mothering uh, or the maternal instinct of God. So uh, before I get into that, I just want to give you a little bit of a window into how our staff uh, operates here at, at, at Christ Pres. So um, our worship director, Lynn Hodges, sent a text message to Casey Kramer, who's been leading uh, through the service today, and me earlier this week, and it said this, Hey, Casey and Scott. Mother's Day is this Sunday. Please mention that in your prayers. Uh, be inclusive and be sensitive to the range of mother experiences uh, in our midst. Uh, there will be joy, there will be sadness, and there will be everything in between. And so this was Casey's response. On it, Lynn, thanks. I have my two best your mama jokes already lined up. <laughs> So I guess that's what an Ivy League education and five years in the NFL will get you. <laughs> All kidding aside, Mother's Day at church is a very complicated thing, and anybody who's in leadership in a church understands that. Um, you know, Mark Twain said it this way, my mother had a great deal of trouble with me, and I think she enjoyed it. So, you, you, you get this mixture of joy and sorrow and everything in between. Everybody's experience, everybody's mother's story is different. 
you know, on the one hand, it's an honorable calling. You know, we're told in Exodus 20, it's actually one of the Ten Commandments, uh, to honor your father and your mother. It's a high calling to be a parent, and that needs to be honored. Uh, every single person in here was carried for nine months, plus or minus, was uh, given birth to through labor pains and, and all that goes into the delivery process. Uh, every one of us, either by a, a birth mother or by an adoptive uh, mother or mother figure, has been nurtured, has been kept fed, has been kept safe, and has been sheltered, uh, you know, especially in our infancy years and especially in, in those years where we didn't have the capacity to care for ourselves. And so, for all of us, we, we, we have to attribute even our presence here, the fact that we're alive, to somebody who has uh, responded to their maternal instinct to care for us at some point in our lives. And then there are others uh, with sorrow, with a sense of loss, with, with uh, experiences of betrayal. Mother's Day, you may or may not know this, it's actually the day of the year where, uh, on the one hand, most uh, the most excitement exists about going to church, and then on the other hand, uh, the least excitement. They're, they're actually people who make an intentional, deliberate choice not to attend any church for fear of, of, of some unintended wound happening to them because of a broken mother's story. And so it's important to pause just for a second and realize how important on a day like today especially it is for, for all who identify with Christ especially to be sensitive, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and also to mourn with those who mourn, and to do it all at the same time. None better than King David and, 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 and none better than Psalm 27 to help put all of our stories, all of our mother's stories especially, in perspective and in light of the story of God. And so, so three headings I want to cover uh, this week. Uh, the first is every single relationship will disappoint, every single one of them. Uh, and then any attempt to mother ourselves will backfire. And then finally, uh, there is only one true home and one true safe place. So, every single relationship will disappoint. Uh, you don't have to live in the world long to discover that, that uh, that the world we live in, it's a fallen world, it's a broken world, it's a world that involves relational wounds. Like we say here often, you know, every single person you meet is fighting a hard, hidden battle. Most of those hard, hidden battles are relational. You know, this, this includes relationships, uh, you know, from outside the home, and, you know, David points this out here. Uh, verse 1, he asks a loaded question to set up the whole psalm. Whom shall I fear? And, you know, as you, as you, you know, go through David's sort of reflection on his own wounds and on his own relational experiences, by the end of the psalm, you almost want to ask, whom shall I not fear? Because, you know, in verses 2 and 3, he's talking about evildoers who are actively assailing him, adversaries and foes everywhere, armies against him. You know, for David, life is war. Life is sleeping with one eye open most of the time. You know, verse 6, he talks about how enemies are all around him. Verse 12, false witnesses who, who speak violent words against him and, 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 and slanderous words about him. His core assumption here, 
is that the world is not relationally safe. That's why we put locks on our doors. That's why we look, that's why we put passwords on all of our accounts. That's why we spend billions of dollars on things like national defense. You know, this was a hard thing for David because David was loyal. He was faithful. He started out with sort of a childlike innocence and, 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 and a desire to be a gift and a blessing and not a burden to people outside of his home. One of those people was King Saul. You know, from, from, from early on in David's life, David had access to the king, and, and he set out to be a gift to the king. You know, the, the king had an anxiety issue, and he had, he had paranoia issues, and every time King Saul experienced anxiety or paranoia, it says that David would go in and play music for him, play the harp for him, and it would calm him, and it would ease his soul, as music does. You know, when, when Goliath, the Philistine, was threatening to, to overtake the people of Israel, it was young David who stepped in and who, by the power of God, defeated Goliath on behalf of King Saul. And with every word that ever came out of David's mouth about or with respect to King Saul, it was, it was a word of honor. It was a word of respect for the office that the man Saul held. And, and how did Saul respond with envy, with bitterness, with betrayal, and eventually with putting a bounty on David's head, you know, demanding that he be executed? So that's the relational safety outside the home that David, you know, experienced. But there was also a, a relational lack of safety inside the home. What a painful story he must have had to say something right in the middle in verse 10, like, my mother and my father have forsaken me. And he wasn't being hyperbolic here. He wasn't overstating a point. You know, we, we have an explicit account of, of, of how his own father had forsaken him. In 1 Samuel 16, if, if you're a Bible reader and you've ever read the story of David through the lens of 1 and 2 Samuel, you might remember the, the, the account of where God you know, told the prophet Samuel to go to the, the house of a man named Jesse. And Jesse had a bunch of sons, and God said, one of those sons of Jesse is going to be the next king, and I want you to go identify that person. When you get there, I'm going to show you who that next king is going to be, and then you're going to anoint him. You're going to pray over him as a prophet does. And so he shows up, and, and Jesse feels honored. One of my boys is going to be king. Oh my goodness, a prophet of the Lord. Let, let's bring all the boys in. And of his seven sons, he brought in six. And they went through one after the other after the other, and, and Samuel said, no, the Lord is not confirming that this is going to be the next king. The Lord does not confirm that this one, or this one, or this one, or this one, or this one. And then Samuel is like, well, I don't think I heard the Lord wrong. Are these all the sons you have? To which Jesse responded, well, there's the one out with the sheep. There's the youngest, as our English translations say, but, but if, if you take it literally, what the actual Hebrew word means is there is the runt. The runt. That's what he thought of his youngest, and that's how he treated him. He was the only son out of all seven that, that, that Jesse didn't even bring to put in front of the prophet. He'd written him off from an early age. 
you know, we wonder, what is it about David? What is it in David, you know, as we read these psalms and all these prayers from David? What is it that draws him so near to God? Maybe it's because his earthly father had pushed him away, and that's what compelled him to draw near to the fatherhood of God. You know, what gave David such a hunger? Maybe he was starved for a paternal blessing from his own daddy that he never got, and that was part of what triggered his hunger for the face of God. But lest we miss it, David also had a mother wound because nowhere in this story do we see a mother coming in to comfort David, a mother coming in to appropriately push back on her husband for calling her boy a runt and his boy a runt and excluding him from a supreme family moment. When a prophet of God is announced, and at least you would call him in to witness the anointing of one of his brothers, but you excluded him entirely from this family. There's no mother coming to his defense. There's no mother uh, pictured coming in to plead his cause and to get his back. There's an article in Christianity Today this past week. Um, Some of you, uh, I'm sure, have read it. Uh, it was written by uh, Leslie Field, and, and what Leslie Field did was she, she surveyed about 150 women with one question, how do you feel about Mother's Day celebration in church? And her summary of, of all 150 answers that she got to that question was this. This is where mourning with those who mourn comes into play. Her conclusion, excerpt, Mother's Day for many is the single most painful day of the entire church year. Whether as a mother or whether as the child of a mother, the mother's story can be a very painful one. There's a book that uh, Christine Lawson uh, wrote, and you, know, you, you may have been given this book by a therapist at some point. We were. And it, 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 it's, it's just a, and, and, and this is, is a book that was given to me to help, uh, you know, especially to, to, to enter into pastoral situations where there's a hard mother's story, especially. And so this book was referred to me by a therapist. And the book is called Understanding the Borderline Mother. So if you're familiar at all with borderline personality, this, the summary phrase for borderline personality is this, I hate you, don't leave me. Shame combined with neediness. And you would be surprised as to how many people grow up with that as their mother's story. And Christine Lawson says there are basically four borderline personality types. There is the queen who is controlling. There is the witch who is sadistic and mean. There is the hermit who is driven by fear. And there is the waif who is helpless and needy. And so what Christine Lawson says about the children who grow up in a home with a borderline mother is this. They're characterized, the children are, by emotional intensity, impulsivity, unpredictability, and fear of abandonment. These are all observable symptoms in those who've grown up in a borderline situation. And I know a lot of you would say, that's not my story. And, and that's not my story either, and I'm very thankful to the Lord for that, that it's not my story, that it's, it's certainly not my children's story. But my mother, 
who has always been a wonderfully affirming, nurturing mother, is still leaving me. My mom right now is in the fourth stage of Alzheimer's. And those of you who have been, you know, who have encountered this horrible disease, you've probably become familiar with the phrase, the long goodbye. That's, that's how the last couple of years of somebody who's, you know, in four-stage Alzheimer's in particular is described as the long goodbye. So growing up, our mother was capable and kind. She was one of the best. We could do no wrong in her eyes. And just three years ago, not long ago at all, um, you know, this is a joke that, that Patty and I have had over our, you know, more than 20 years of marriage, but it's not really a joke. Like, I, I could be talking on the phone with my mom, and she's so excited to, to engage with me that I would actually be able to put the phone down, go do something for an hour and a half, go mow the grass, come back, pick up the phone. She would still be, you know, sharing whatever was, you know, on her heart to share with her boy. Now our phone calls typically don't last any longer than a minute. She needs assistance to talk on the phone. She needs assistance to answer the phone. She needs assistance to construct sentences and to remember her grandchildren's and sometimes her son's names. And so when I read from Isaiah, will a mother forget her child? You know, five years ago, I would have said never in a million years will a mother forget her child. But now my answer to that question is, yes, even the best mothers will forget their children. Everyone has an expiration date. And so everyone has a mother wound. Which brings me to the next thought, and that is that any attempt to mother ourselves will backfire. And we mother ourselves by redirecting our I want my mommy cry. At some point in life, we, we, when we feel a need for belonging, a need for safety, a need for a sense of home, which is what motherhood represents in the purest and best sense, at some point in my life, I stop saying I want my mommy. Probably not going to be very employable as a, you know, a, a 38-year-old guy if, if, if I go into a job interview and say I want my mommy. But instead, I will say, I want you to tell me I do a good job. That too is a mommy cry. It's a cry for belonging. It's a cry for safety. You know, when we're sad, when we're scared, when we're hungry as little kids, the instinctive cry is, I want my mom. Where is my mommy? When we get older, the mommy cry just gets more sophisticated. It gets more veiled. It gets redirected toward other sources for belonging and safety. But it's a mommy cry nonetheless. We're crying out until the day we die for belonging and for safety. You know, for belonging, we, we get to high school and we look for it in a friend group, in a clique, in a dating relationship. When we become adults, we, we look for that sense of belonging. We, 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 we direct our mommy cry toward a social circle that, that we're, you know, desperate to belong to. Or, or, you know, maybe even an event, right? We're in, we're in Music City. There are all kinds of concerts and stuff. Um, you know, we, 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 our whole family went last night. It was interesting. As a combination of celebrating my birthday and Mother's Day, we went to a concert uh, for the artist that, that's our oldest daughter's favorite <laughs> artist. So, um, so uh, we went and heard uh, Drew Holcomb, 
who's really just terrific, beautiful. The Thorntons were there. We saw a lot of you guys there. Uh, this is just a magnificent concert. One of the things that Drew said sort of in the middle of the show was, you know, basically, this is why we all love coming to concerts. This is why we love places like the Ryman Auditorium. We get to be alone together, which is much better than being alone alone. You know, it, it, I, I don't know where Drew was going with this. It was more of a celebratory statement than anything. But, but, but what his statement represented was the, the, the heart's cry that we all have for belonging. That's why we'll, we'll go for counterfeit belonging even. That's why Starbucks has become so popular. The, the whole theme of, of Starbucks is, is you don't have to be alone alone. You can come be alone together with other people. See, that's a mommy cry. It's a mommy cry. You know, professionally wanting to hear good job, needing to hear good job, that is a bona fide mommy cry. Or to have the kind of physical appearance that will turn people's heads when you walk into a room, that's a mommy cry. Or wanting the stage as a performer, as a pastor, in order to get affirmation from the crowds, it's not a bad thing. But it's a mommy cry. You know, the comedian... Uh, Tom Arnold, maybe I've shared this with you before in his, his book, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. Um, you know, he did an interview. Uh, he did an interview on that book, and, 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 and he said, you know, I'll tell you why I'm in entertainment. I'm in entertainment because I'm a radically insecure piece, pe- person, and I want something out there all the time so that people will say that they like me. It's the reason behind everything that I do. That's a cry. That's a mommy cry for belonging. Social media, that dopamine rush that we get when, when a like or a, a new follow comes in, or a positive review of, of, our, of our art. We're all crying for belonging. We're crying for safety. We look to a couple of things for safety. We look to money. You know, that nest egg. You ever, you ever wonder why we, we refer to our currency with words like this? We put our money in a safe. Our savings... Uh, those are our securities. You ever wonder why we attach such words? That's a mommy cry. Or we become social chameleons. We adapt to whatever environment, whatever group of people we're with. We have our church self. We have our at-home self. We have our, you know, out, you know, at, at a pub self. We have our, you know, behind the computer by ourselves on social media self. We have all kinds of multiple selves, pseudo-selves, you know, a lot like Woody Allen's Zelig. You know, who, who, who changes his personality depending on who he's with. He'll become a Nazi if he's with Nazis. He'll become a servant of the poor if he's with Mother Teresa and, 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 and her, her helpers. doesn't matter because the mommy cry is there for safety. You know, Robert Frost talks about this. He says this is what home is, and this is what mothering in the best sense of the word represents. Home is where they have to take you in. The problem is that we're struggling, all of us, to find a place that we know has to take us in because the covenant is so strong and so rich. But even from the mouth of David, inspired by God, even our daddies and our mamas, they're going to forsake us. Even the good ones are going to forget us. And so where does that leave us? It leaves us with this, every mother substitute is eventually going to forsake us. 
You know, Tim Keller compares it to trying to scratch an itch through several layers of clothing. Here's what he says. What you really have to do is satisfy, what you really have to do to satisfy an itch is to tear off your clothes, rip down through the layers, and make a direct hit. The Bible says there's a deep lust in our hearts for a touch from God. And by looking at other beauty and by building other homes and by working on developing great marriages in order to scratch the itch, what we're actually doing is trying to scratch the itch through a lot of layers of clothes. But if you really push and you really press through the clothes, it's not very satisfying. But you can at least get it to stop itching for a while. But you can't wait to get home because at home you can take your shirt off and make the direct hit and really address the itch. You know, Camus talked about this when he was talking about his own reaction to beauty. If you're not familiar with Albert Camus, he was an existentialist philosopher, uh, understood one side of Christianity better than most Christians do, the fall, the brokenness of the human condition aspect. That's where the existential philosophers like Camus and Sartre and Nietzsche uh, give us great value. They help us understand the brokenness of the human condition. The problem is there's no sense of hope to resolve that brokenness in the existentialist philosophy. But here's where we can benefit from Camus. He talks about his own reaction to beauty And he says this, beauty for me is unbearable. It drives us to despair, offering us for a minute and only a minute the glimpse of an eternity that we should like to stretch out over the whole of time. His point is is this, beautiful things are vulnerable things. Beautiful things are fleeting things. Beautiful things are finite things. Beautiful things, they all have an expiration date. You know, scientists will tell us even the sun is going to burn out one day. Second law of thermodynamics. You can Google it. That's how I found out about it. On Google. If the internet says it, it's true. But you just think about how, how King Saul used music, for instance, to, to calm his anxiety, to escape his anxiety, to escape his restlessness. So that's a wonderful gift that music can be. But the problem is, Most songs are only about three and a half minutes long, and that's what Camus was getting at. You know, there's an expiration date on beauty. At some point, you're going to have to turn back away from the beauty toward the real world in which you live. And if you're lucky, you can afford to go to a concert that has an encore. So you can prolong a little bit the experience of beauty, but eventually it's going to bite you. Eventually the itch is going to resurface, Camus is saying, because will a mother forget? Yeah. She will. Which brings me finally to, to this. This is the resolution that Camus could not find. There is one true home, one true and eternal safe place. God who is permanent will not forget. Verse 4, yeah, he says, One thing I ask for, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Where do we see the beauty of God manifest most in Scripture but in the marring of His beauty, in the defacing of His beauty on the cross so that the Father can now turn away from the Son as if the Son were regarded as hideous so He could turn toward us and and call us beautiful. It's an unbelievably mysterious thing. Think about Jesus' life. His own mother did forsake him for a time. 
Mark chapter 3, she's calling him, along with the rest of his family, a lunatic. He's out of his mind. And then somebody, you know, comes in and says, Lord, your, your mom, your brothers, your sisters, they're looking for you. They want to take you home. They want to get you out of the public eye. You're, you're a little bit embarrassing, a little bit humiliating to the family. You know, all this, you know, all this, you know, all this talk that you're, you're you know, this controversial stuff that you're, you're teaching, all this sort of subversive, you know, revolutionary stuff. They just want to take you home, tame you a little bit. And Jesus says, I'll tell you who my mother and my brothers are. Everyone who hears the will of God and does it. Those are my mothers. Those are my brothers. David's saying the same thing. The house of the Lord. There I've got many mothers. And you think of Jesus, his father also forsook him. Not just his mother, but his father, just as was the case with David. And we see that even this psalm is about Jesus because his mother and his father forsook him. On the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So one time Jesus doesn't refer to God as Father. My God, why have you forsaken me? Direct quote from the 22nd Psalm, which was penned by David. Forgotten. My God, why have you treated me as a runt? Why have you put me out here with the sheep and regarded me as a runt? Here's why. So that in being orphaned, Jesus could create a place of belonging and a home for us. The house of the Lord. You know, as I say my long goodbye, which seems way too short, with my own mother, I am deeply conscious of how dependent I am on surrogate mothers in the house of the Lord. And by the way, the house of the Lord will never expire. There's no expiration date. The gates of hell will never prevail against it, right? And so, what I lose in my mother, I gain from many of you. If I need a cheerleader, somebody who repeatedly says, I'm proud of you, you're doing a great job, I look to Mary, and I look to Anna, and I look to Janine, who was in the earlier service. If I need prayer, I look to Sharon. She sits right back there. If I need personal support and champion, I look to Lynn. If I need food, I look to Rose. If I, look, if I need somebody to get my back and be a mama bear, I look to KK. If I need to be challenged, there are a whole lot of people I can look to. <laughs> the other thing that comforts me is when Patty, my wife, and I, when we fade to know that our kids also have surrogate mothers. Our oldest daughter has been independent or transitioning toward independence for one year now. She's been in college, and, and she has made a friend in her church seven hours away from here who is now as a mother to her. Her name is Stacy. Incredible support, incredible mentor to her. You know, our, our youngest daughter, you know, we've, we've had, she's still with us, but we've also had Several people, particularly parents of her friends, tell us, you know what, she feels like one of her own. And if she ever needed to be, we, we would be all in with that. There's actually a family with five kids that, 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 that has referred to her as seis, which is Spanish for six. How important the church is. And then the safety that Jesus provides. I'll leave us all with this. Remember how he treated his own mother when she couldn't come through for him on the cross. He looks down at her and says, woman, behold your son. 
you know, and points to his best friend, John. And then he looks to his best friend, John, and says, man, behold your mother. Even from the cross, Jesus is mothering his own mother. Even from the cross, he is delivering the woman who had once delivered him. And that's the message of this table in front of us. With God, you always belong. You are always safe because God is permanent. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that the same thing that You said over Jerusalem, You say over us, that You long to gather us just like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You you long, You say, Lord, You long to give us a place of belonging and a place of safety that has no expiration date, that's permanent. thank You that You are a good, good Father who mothers us so well, even by setting this magnificent table for us, Your daughters and sons, to enjoy now and forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.